guys? I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show and you want to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or follow the link at the contribute tab on wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up, I promise. For just a buck a month, or two or three, or however much you would like to give, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, and you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. The latest contributors-only episode further explores the disappearance of the Old English pronoun thou. If Patreon's not your thing, you can also do a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. That's paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Megan, Joseph, Anne, Martin, and Joshua for their recent contributions. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to the History of the Papacy podcast by Stephen Guerra. Since starting this particular series on biblical etymology, I've dived into a handful of Bible and Christianity-themed podcasts, and Stevens is one of the best. Unlike most history podcasts, the History of the Papacy podcast doesn't cover its subject material in a chronological order. There are tons of interesting digressions, all relevant to the papacy, of course, plus a handful of discussions with Gary Stevens from the History of the Bible podcast, who I brought up in the previous episode. I think that's all the house cleaning for today. On to today's show, episode four in our extended series on biblical etymology. It's hard to utter the word demon without associating it with evil. It conjures an array of imagery from pitchfork-wielding imps to incorporeal spirits encased in flames. This imagery draws on some kind of underworld beyond the mortal realm, which in the Christian tradition is, of course, hell. Whether you yourself are religious or not, the broad connotations of the word demon have a distinctly Christian lineage that we've all inadvertently inherited. It's a bit ironic, then, that most of what we're about to discuss today takes place long before even the earliest days of Christianity, and it has very little to do with hell. The word demon derives from the ancient Greek word daemon, which we're about to dive into in great detail. In order to distinguish demons from daemons, in modern discussions, the latter is generally transliterated into English as D-A-I-M-O-N, and it often maintains a unique pronunciation. Because I can't rely on spelling to convey meaning in this format of audio podcasting, in order to maintain clarity over the course of this show, I'm going to use the two distinct pronunciations, demon and daemon, when each is appropriate. Demon will be used to refer to the modern English sense of the word, and daemon will be used in reference to the ancient Greek sense of the word. Really, what I should say is ancient Greek senses of the word. The pre-Christian notion of daemon eludes a precise definition because, depending on who's using it, how they're using it, and when they're using it, 
It could mean several different things. In the most general sense, a daemon is a supernatural entity that occupies a realm somewhere between the mortal and the divine. This definition lacks any subtlety or context, but for now, I think it's good enough to set the stage for what we're about to get into. Unlike the word demon, its Christian descendant, daemon had no evil connotations, at least not in the beginning. For the pagan Greeks, the daemonic was a concept that blurred the lines between religion and classical philosophy. It's a concept that spans the entirety of Greek literature, beginning with Homer and culminating in the Koine Greek of the New Testament. So let's take our first step into the world of pagan Greek daemons, some 800 years or so before the birth of Christ. In its earliest usage, a daemon could refer to any god or goddess. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer occasionally uses the word in this very generic sense. However, the Greek word theos, which gives us modern English words such as theocracy, theology, and pantheon, was the more common word for god or goddess. When theos and daemon were used in a context together, daemon implied the lesser gods. Often, these lesser gods served as messengers between the twelve great Olympian gods and the mortal realm. This sense of lesser gods is perhaps the earliest distinct meaning we can attribute to daemon. Like I already mentioned, the concept of daemon will evolve over time, even within the pagan Greek world that first defined it, but this intermediary role between mortal and divine will remain one of its constant characteristics. Small-time Greek deities such as Hypnos, Geros, and Phobos, the gods of sleep, old age, and fear, respectively, were all considered daemons. Unlike the great Olympian gods, daemons did not have mythological stories built around them and are seldom represented in art. Very few acquired personal characteristics and even fewer achieved the status of religious worship. The daemon Eros, or the god of love, is an exception to this rule. Note that Hypnos, Geros, and Phobos are all direct personifications of various aspects of the human condition. Ancient Greeks would have understood this intuitively because the common nouns for sleep, old age, and fear in Greek were Hypnos, Geros, and Phobos respectively. Do the words Hypnosis, Geriatric, and Phobia ring a bell? The point here is that these daemons did not receive special proper names like Zeus or Poseidon, but were instead called by the name of the thing they personified. For this reason, when rendering the names of daemons in English, many translators simply use the English word closest to the object personified rather than the original ancient Greek name. Since the Greeks would have literally understood a name like Phobos to mean fear, an English translator might capture a similar effect by simply writing fear with a capital F as if it were a proper name. Some other Greek daemons include Thanatos, or death, Hebe, or youth, Plutus, or wealth, Nike, 
or victory, among many, many others. The ancient Greek writer Hesiod, believed to be a contemporary of Homer, expanded upon the concept of what daemons were. According to Hesiod, daemons were not gods per se, but divine spirits that were closely intertwined with and invested in the everyday lives of mortals. They were the eternal spirits of deceased heroes from the Golden Age who, by the bidding of Zeus, had become protective spirits after their deaths. The actual form that they took is unclear. Some have interpreted these Golden Age daemons as ghosts, while others have interpreted them as forces of nature, whatever that means. Apparently, good fortune came to those who showed these daemons the proper respect. Although Hesiod's daemons never explicitly revealed themselves to mortals, they were crucial to how events in the mortal realm unfolded. Because of this, Hesiod's conception of daemons was closely linked to fate and destiny, and by extension, the derived adjective daemonios, which meant incomprehensible, uncanny, or strange, is believed to have developed from Hesiod's view. If we move our narrative forward to the 5th century BCE, we find a few new ideas about daemons beginning to emerge. The first of these new ideas was innovated by the philosopher Socrates. As retold in the works of Plato, Socrates believed that his daemon, or daemonion as he called it, was an inner guiding voice. Daemonion, by the way, is a diminutive form of the word that basically means the same thing. For whatever reason, this is the form of the word most commonly used in the Bible. The actual root word daemon is only used once. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Anyway, Socrates claimed that ever since his birth, his inner oracle, or daemonion, guided him toward or against certain decisions. Even though he believed that his daemonion was divine, he simultaneously believed that it was fully integrated into his mortal self. This is a great example of how the daemonic continued to occupy that intermediary realm between the divine and mortal, even as new ideas about what daemons actually were continued to evolve. Apparently, Socrates' friends recognized the brilliance of his daemonion, and when they went to it to ask for advice, the daemonion had moral preferences about whom it liked to answer and what questions it liked to answer. Discounting anecdotes like this as superstitious embellishments, modern scholars have likened Socrates' take on daemons to the modern secular notion of conscience. After Socrates' death, Plato, Socrates' student, presented his own ideas concerning the nature of daemons, many of which were modifications of previously established beliefs. According to Plato, the gods assigned a daemon to every man at his birth in order to serve as a guardian angel throughout life. Given the eventual fate of the daemons in the post-Christian world, Plato's idea that daemons were basically angels has an irony to it that I just love. Unlike Socrates, Plato believed that daemons were separate entities from the men they protected. They dwelled in the air, which served as an intermediate realm between heaven and earth. 
Anyone who's ever read Plato knows that he is one of history's staunchest moralists, so it comes as no surprise that his conception of daemons disagrees with his poetic and philosophical predecessors on the topic of divine morality. Plato famously derided the portrayal of gods in the works of Homer and Hesiod, that is, the portrayal of Greek gods best remembered by us today. Part of the appeal of Greek mythology to modern audiences is that the gods are lusty, conniving, traitorous, short-sighted, selfish, and so on. It makes for great, if not morally perplexing, storytelling, and Plato would have none of it. In contrast to these sorts of conventions, Plato believed that the gods were only capable of doing good. Consider this excerpt from Plato's Republic. Quote, For the good, we must assume no other cause than God, but for the cause of evil, we must look in other things that are not God. We must not accept from Homer or any other poet the folly of such error as this about the gods. End quote. This unwavering conviction that God is perfect and lacking in nothing sounds a whole lot like Judeo-Christian philosophy, and for that very reason, many of Plato's ideas were reconfigured by later Christian philosophers to fit into their own religious worldview, including, many have argued, his interpretation of daemons. You see, since God was perfect and capable of no evil— Plato believed that all evil in the world had to be caused by daemons, the lesser divine beings inhabiting that realm between heaven and earth. Daemons were subject to the same passions and whims as mankind, and because of this, like mankind, they didn't always make the best of decisions. This moral ambiguity fostered the belief that people actually had two daemons with them at all times, a eudaemon and a cacodaemon. Eudaimon literally meant good daemon. Eudaimons were also called agathadaemons, which meant the same thing. Eudaimon was also the word for a lucky person, which implied that they literally possessed a good spirit or good guardian angel. Furthermore, the derived term eudaimonia was used most famously by Aristotle to describe the kind of happiness achieved through virtuous actions throughout life. Cacodaemon, on the other hand, literally meant bad daemon. This word has actually survived into modern English in a very obscure sense. Cacodemomania is a clinical form of insanity in which a person thinks that their body is possessed by an evil spirit. Based on these two subcategories, it seems like our modern sense of the word demon is more closely related to cacodaemon than to daemon itself. So why did the caco part get dropped when Greek-speaking Christians adapted the term daemon, rendered as daemonion, to describe evil spirits within their own religious tradition? The answer probably goes back to the theory of morally perfect gods proposed by Plato. This line of thought was maintained by later Platonic thinkers, perhaps most famously Xenocrates, and by the turn of the first millennium CE, it had permeated the Hellenistic world at large, which is the world that ushered in the spread of Christianity. Though not as well known as Socrates or Plato, Xenocrates' contribution to the evolution of daemons is not insignificant. 
While Xenocrates maintained earlier beliefs about daemons, such as their occupation of an intermediary realm between the human and divine, he sought to explain their morally fickle nature using reason. Well, pre-scientific reason. He claimed that daemons were able to perceive their own bodies, and that was what made them so human-like. They were able to experience pleasure and pain, and this is the fact that accounts for their inclinations toward good and evil alike. In his book, Religion in Ancient Greece and Rome, H.J. Rose provides a wonderfully lucid explanation of how Greeks began reinterpreting old myths according to the new ideas of Plato, Xenocrates, and their intellectual successors. According to Rose, these reinterpretations would lead to the notion of daemons that Hellenistic Jews and Christians would ultimately inherit. I don't think I could say this better myself, so here's a long quote. If a myth, authoritative through its age or its association with venerable rites, was morally unpleasing, it might still be accepted and the believer's conscience rest undisturbed by the simple assumption that it referred to daemons, not to gods proper. The former might indeed, being ethically imperfect, fight one another, make love to mortal women, be banished from the society of their kind for their offenses, or even die— none of which things is becoming to divine majesty. The Apollo who killed the Cyclops because they made the thunderbolts who slew his son Asclepios was not a true god, but a daemon bearing the god's name. If rites of aversion existed, they were aimed at daemons of an inferior order who had yielded, as a man might do, to their own baser impulses, and so did harm or must be bribed into going away. Magic, also, became explicable. The sorcerer did not really influence gods by his charms, but it might be that he was powerful enough to press daemons into his service and make them help him in his not always worthy purposes. End quote. This stance allowed Hellenistic Jews and Christians and Hellenistic pagans to agree on a single religious issue that daemons could be evil and intent on misleading mankind. However, the condemnation of daemons by Hellenized Jews and Christians wasn't just a matter of cultural conformity. Indeed, they had their own agenda against daemons, and it just so happened to be reinforced by a belief that had arisen within pagan Greek religion. This two-pronged assault against daemons helped damn them for all time pun intended, and influence the sense of the word that we've inherited today. But what was the Christian agenda against daemons? Simple. Just take a look at the first of the Ten Commandments. Quote, I am the Lord your God, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. End quote. If you were a Christian, then daemons, whether eudaemons or cacodaemons, good or bad, didn't belong to your God, plain and simple. They were false and they were blasphemous. At this point, I think it's time that we turn our attention to the appearance of daemons and demons in the Bible. At this point, the distinction between the two terms is going to become a little tricky. Let's start with the Old Testament. But first, a quick informative digression. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, while the New Testament was written in Greek. 
The Old Testament was translated into Greek between the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE in a version known as the Septuagint. This translation took place in the Hellenized city of Alexandria, Egypt. At the time, Alexandria was a multicultural metropolis. It was home to many Jews who couldn't speak Hebrew, the language of their forefathers, but instead spoke Greek as their native tongue. The Septuagint preserved the textual tradition of the Jewish faith, but it did so in translation. Because our story concerns the lineage of the Greek word daemon, the Septuagint is the version of the Old Testament that is of interest to us. The Hebrew word translated as daemons in the Septuagint is shedim. Unsurprisingly, in English versions of the Bible, shedim is translated as demons. I say demons instead of demon because shedim is a plural noun, and this is the only form of the word that appears in the Old Testament. It only appears twice in the original Hebrew texts, and this scarcity of usage isn't insignificant. It's an indication that, in comparison to early Christianity, Judaism was not particularly interested in or threatened by demons, as we know them, during the composition of the Old Testament. So let's take a look at this Hebrew word, shedim. Many etymologists have theorized that shedim is cognate with the Akkadian word shedu, which, like the Greek word daemon, was originally a neutral term applied to both good and evil supernatural entities. For those who may not know, Akkadian, like Hebrew, belongs to the Semitic language family and was once the lingua franca of the ancient Near East. Anyway, Psalm 106.37 and Deuteronomy 32:17 both describe sacrifices to false gods and in these passages those false gods are called shedim but shedim is not just a generic term for false gods jewish folklore has generated various stories surrounding shedim according to some accounts they're the descendants of the serpent that tempted eve in the garden of eden According to others, they are the descendants of storm gods of pre-Israelite Canaan. My personal favorite take on Shedim is that they are half-human, half-rooster beings. Now, I'm no specialist in Jewish studies, so take my opinion with a grain of salt, but based on these various interpretations, I don't think we can reconstruct the precise meaning of the word intended by the original authors of the text. What I can say for sure is that when the authors of the Old Testament used the word shedim, they were not talking about Greek daemons in any of its historical senses, and they certainly weren't talking about demons as we know them today. There just wasn't any cultural overlap between the Greek and Israelite worlds at that time. Sure, shedim, daemon, and demon, all words associated with some form of non-Christian heathenry, but that doesn't mean that they're all the same thing. Each word comes from its own cultural tradition, and the infallible nature of translating words over time has conflated them into a single idea, first in Greek and then again in modern English. Interestingly, the kinds of spirits in the Old Testament that in my opinion, most closely resemble modern demons, are never called demons in English. They're also not called daemons or daemonions in Greek. 
This is probably because the malicious spirits that I'm talking about are actually sent down to earth by God himself as a punishment for human sin. And it would sound rather scandalous if the Bible claimed that God was in cahoots with demons. Check out these passages, and I think you'll see what I mean. Judges 9.23, quote, But God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem, and the lords of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. End quote. First Kings twenty two twenty three, quote, So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these your prophets. The Lord has decreed disaster from you. End quote. First Samuel nineteen nine, quote, Then an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing music. End quote. With that brief investigation of, for lack of a better word, demons in the Old Testament, not to mention evil spirits that seem like demons but apparently aren't, let's finally take a look at demons in the New Testament. At long last, we've finally reached a point in history at which the Greek word daemonion suggests something similar to demon, its modern English descendant. Today, many Christians believe that demons are capable of possessing and tormenting human hosts. By extension, these demons can be driven out of their hosts if a priest properly performs an exorcism. Even if you don't believe in demons and exorcisms, they're a familiar trope in our popular culture, especially in horror films like The Exorcist and The Conjuring. Well, the New Testament describes more than 60 exorcisms, the vast majority of which are performed by none other than Jesus himself. In contrast, the Old Testament doesn't describe a single exorcism. Another quick informative digression. This one, a little less quick. By 300 BCE, a date between the composition of the Old and New Testaments, but much closer to the composition of the latter, a belief in demons had begun to arise within certain sects of Judaism. If you ask me, this newly developed belief in demons can be attributed, at least in part, to Hellenistic influences on Jewish theology. In the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests, he left imprints of Greek culture all over the Near East, and among those imprints, naturally, would have been the notions of daemons described in the first portion of this episode. Taking into consideration the characteristics of daemons in the Platonic school of thought, it's not hard to see how, over time, they could have been absorbed by Jewish communities and then reconfigured to fit into their monotheistic worldview. Okay, back to exorcisms. New Testament exorcisms are not the violent and grotesque exorcisms portrayed by Hollywood. There are no spinning heads and certainly no projectile vomiting. In fact, most of the exorcisms described in the New Testament, there are more than 60 of them, by the way, are a piece of cake. When encountering demons, Jesus generally commands the demons to leave, and then they leave. He says, get out, and they're gone if only Father Karras had it that easy. Furthermore, many of the symptoms of demonic possession in the New Testament are physical and mental ailments that, well, quite frankly, don't require possession by a demon. Sores, muteness, blindness, lunacy, 
and even a woman's back problems are all attributed to demons. Actually, the last of these is attributed to Satan himself. According to the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus put his hands on said woman, Satan vanished, and she was able to straighten out her back for the first time in 18 years. As far as exorcisms go, it doesn't get any easier than that. Many Christians have re-examined the veracity of demonic possession in the New Testament, instead interpreting demons as a literary metaphor. The Roman Catholic Church has officially abandoned the belief that demons are responsible for mental and physical illnesses. However, it still believes that demonic possessions have occurred in the past and can occur again in the future. Of course, there are Christians who believe that the Bible is an infallible account of truth, so for them, the abundance of demonions that suddenly revealed themselves during the life of Christ were in fact real. Take your pick. From the time of Christ's death all the way through the Middle Ages, Christian thinkers continue to interpret the theological role of daemons and daemonions. In his seminal work, City of God, written in the 5th century BCE, St. Augustine flat out states that, quote, The gods worshipped by pagan Egypt, Greece, and Rome had all been demons who misrepresented themselves to human beings. End quote. So, Zeus, demon. Jupiter, demon. Ra, Nefertiti, demon, demon. The later Christian thinker St. Thomas Aquinas would go on to philosophize the corporeality of demons, a Christian attempt at a topic covered by the pagan Greek Xenocrates, if you recall, and Dante's Divine Comedy would render demons fiery and grotesque, bringing them closer to the kinds of entities depicted in modern horror films. As far as classical literature goes, the Inferno is about as close to a horror story as you can get. I think this is a good place to bring our narrative to an end. It's been a heck of a ride. This was by far the most time-intensive and convoluted episode I've ever researched for this show, so I really hope that you enjoyed it and that you retain some of the delicious details of this very complex evolution. I'm not even sure that I fully understand it yet. From the lesser Greek deities, to the spirits of deceased Golden Age heroes, to the voice inside Socrates' head, to divinely ordained guardian angels, to the culprit of a woman's long-term back problems, to the inhabiting spirit in the movie The Exorcist. All of these, and more, represent ideas along the historical spectrum of what a demon could be. All right. If you love the show, again, I'd like to remind you that you can sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash words for granted. If that's not in your budget, no problem. You can still leave a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. You can also tell a friend about the show, uh, particularly a friend who doesn't know they're interested in historical linguistics, yet actually needs a little more historical linguistics in their life. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.